Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast hosted by Fun Caliber. In this episode, we're discussing big names like Amazon and Meta, Facebook's parent company. But it's not what you think. These names aren't top 10 holdings. Instead, today's manager has exited his position in a number of popular names and is here to tell us more about his thoughts for the future. I'm Ryan Leifer Aminoff, and today we have the pleasure of welcoming back Stephen Yu, the elite rated manager of the Blue Whale Growth Fund. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, now, last time we spoke to you, um, you told us why you wouldn't touch the likes of uh, Zoom and Netflix. Um, those two companies, uh, their share prices have tumbled quite a lot recently. Um, this must have helped performance of your fund in the most recent months. Yeah, I, I recall that we have spoken at length about Netflix and Zoom because I think these two companies were kind of the de facto pandemic winners back in 2020. And I think the one thing that has always been on our mind based on our research is that the, the switching cost for these two companies in terms of services is pretty low. And I think that that is what we probably have seen over the last six to nine months that Netflix has not managed to get as many subscribers as they wanted. And at the same time, I think some of their subscribers have probably gone on to the Disney Plus. And I think similar with Zoom that some people probably are now using Teams uh, to do some of the uh, online calls. Uh, I think what happened recently in terms of in the market is, I mean, I think avoiding some of this disaster has been helpful to the performance, but I think we probably would have have a bit more conversation in terms of what happened recently, because I I think we are not immune to the indiscriminate sell-off in the market. But I think not having the disaster that when, if when the market were to recover, then I think we are in a very strong position. And maybe another sort of more controversial one, you've recently sold um, Amazon, PayPal and Meta, the parent company for Facebook. Um, Does that mean you think that their growth stories are over? I think I I would probably come back to Amazon last. I think for PayPal, there's a bit of a concern now in terms of the credibility of the management team. So Dan Shorman, which has been one of the highly rated uh, management team in the tech industry in the U.S., he he is now closing to running the company for about seven to eight years since 2015. And at the same time, I think if you track the performance of PayPal versus the Nasdaq 100 index for the last seven to eight years that the PayPal shares has actually underperformed uh, the Nasdaq 100 index, which is a bit concerning if you are you are the management team who has been running it for years. And I'm sure as uh, we are, we're probably closer to the time that the shareholders or maybe the board would demand that could be a potential change of management team. So I think if you are looking in terms of the uncertainty, who is going to be in charge of this company, then you can argue that the thesis is made broken because whatever PayPal's manager achieved over the last eight years, I think if you, we were to have a new management team going forward, that growth trajectory could be quite different. And, and hence, I think from a shareholder perspective like us, we rather sit on a sideline rather than sit with the the uncertainty in the shares. I think for for Meta I, or Facebook, I've probably spoken length about this, that I think the, the change of direction for the company when they announced that they're going to change the name to Meta in October last year, that 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 uh, constitute to a thesis violation because the way that we assess valuation is we we look at free cash flow yield over the next let's say three to five years 
And if I'm sure our audience uh, would know this already, that free cash flow is defined as after capital expenditure. And given Facebook or Meta have already spent about $10 billion in building this metaverse, which I'm sure that in the next probably five to 10 years, they would need to spend at least 50 to $100 billion to make this successful if it were ever going to be successful. But at the same time that you don't actually get any profit of this venture, so if you just put this number into our valuation model, that the valuation is no longer attractive and it's actually quite expensive on that basis. And so I think we, I'm sure we can touch on this a bit more that we, we are a believer of the metaverse at some point, maybe 10 to 20 years from today, but whether Meta slash Facebook is going to be the ultimate winner, that is a big question mark. I think last but not least, we we have also exited our position in Amazon. The, the thesis really is about that we are a bit concerning about inflation uh, in terms, at least for as far as the retail business is concerned, as you can imagine that with all the uh, trade toward that's going on be, between the West and the East, the supply chain issues at the same time, wages, inflation in the warehouse, uh, logistic delivery, etc. that is not going to disappear anytime soon. And I think it's slightly fortunate that Amazon uh, in the recent results a few weeks ago, they decided to raise the prices for the Prime membership in the US, which is about $20 uh, a year increase. But I, if you really do the calculation in terms of the kind of the monthly increase, we're only talking about, about $2 per month in terms of increase. And, and as, as we all know, sitting here in the UK or maybe mostly in London, that you know that Prime membership sometimes they get you not only same day delivery, but could be within like the next two hours or three hours. So paying $2 additional a month probably doesn't really cover the core increasing cost in terms of what you get as a Prime member. But at least Amazon has managed to offset some of the increasing cost. So it's not end of the world, but but they would definitely be making less money from here as far as the retail business is concerned. So I think that has not changed and and we are we we're glad that we are we have exited the position. Um, and just coming back to Facebook, you said you've sold it. Um, you said you're willing to be uh, to buy it back again. It does show that you are quite flexible and pragmatic in your approach, which makes it does help you stand out from your your, your peers. I think that's a fair point because I, I think one thing that we have sorry acquired over the number of years, or if you do follow some of our companies, that even though many of our companies are ex of exceptional quality or the management team are of exceptional caliber, but things does change over time. And we have spent so much time following some of these companies, such as PayPal or Facebook or Amazon. And it's always very costly in terms of time that we are spent on this company to then decide to exit the position because then we have to do repeat this the level of work that we have accumulated on a new company and, and so that we can continue uh, generating performance for our investors. And I think for Facebook or Meta, the challenge now is, I think there are two things. I think for Zuckerberg to decide to spend tens of billions on this metaverse, which is a bit unproven at the moment as far as Facebook is concerned, that 
does destroy the uh, thesis, that investment thesis that we originally had for Facebook. And I think what is going to change for from here is I think either if Zuckerberg decide not to pursue this metaverse interest, then maybe we could look at it again. But obviously, given what they have just done recently to change the name of the company to Meta, then it's unlikely it's going to happen anytime soon. I think the second part then is that at some point, if Meta could then demonstrate that they could actually generate some profit on the back of this Metaverse investment, then maybe we could look at it again to consider whether the valuation would be attractive at the time. But I think at the moment, you just don't have any of this certainty. And I think you, I think people need to be, remember that we run a high conviction mandate around 25 to 30 holdings in the fund. At the moment, we only have 25 holdings. And, and to, to put this money to work with the level of conviction that I think the level of scrutiny that we would apply to a company is pretty high. I think in contrast, if for a global fund that run maybe, I don't know, 75 to 100 holdings. And maybe Meta or Facebook is only one of the 100 names that you have in the fund with a very small position, then maybe it's fine. You can just wait it out. It, you can see what happened in the next few years. But when you're running a high conviction mandate, I think everything counts. And, and we would rather sit on the sideline that we don't think we're missing out because we do have other better companies in the fund that we feel that we don't need to take that level of risk or uncertainty to to put our investment investors' money to work. And you've mentioned um, in a few things that you, you think a couple of themes for 2022 will be um, the sort of the 5G rollout and the sort of continuation of this digital transformation. Um, let's start with 5G. What do you like about this theme and how are you playing it in the portfolio? We, uh, yeah, we do like the 5G. I think uh, one thing that 5G does or similar to, a bit similar to fiber is we would ever be consuming a lot more content like on our mobile phone, like anywhere that we are, we could be working remotely, sitting on a beach and still able to do some uh, conference call, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one thing on the back of that is not only that this is going to power or enhance a lot of digital transformation in terms of how we conduct businesses or how we conduct our day-to-day -day life. But at the same time, there's a lot of data that we generated on the back of this 5G, uh, the kind of the penetration of 5G or the fiber onto the cloud, let's say onto the cloud data center. And one thing that we know already that all this data that has been generated from us are quite valuable to a lot of businesses in terms of the analytics they can perform in terms of our shop habits in terms of the recommendation they want to make to us on a real-time basis, etc. So one company that we have been a big fan of since last year that it was a new addition to the fund, uh, to our top 10 last year, was NVIDIA. And NVIDIA, I'm sure some of our audience would 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 would, under, would have followed a company that back in the old days that NVIDIA was all about uh, gaming and crypto mining. But then what's happening now or going forward in the next three to five years at least is all about uh, utilizing NVIDIA's GPU, which is very powerful uh, processing unit on in the uh, hyperscale cloud data center so that 
the when we let's say when we are going onto the YouTube, we watch certain programs, and then suddenly you get recommended some similar video that you may want to see. And then obviously, if you go to an Amazon website, you bought something, and suddenly some recommendation come to you quite quickly. So historically, before we have the five G or the fiber, like by the time they make the recommendation. To us, it could be days later. Like by the time that they make recommendation, we would no longer be interested. But now, with all our data on the cloud, uh, uh, and also with the very powerful GPU that Nvidia produced, that they could make recommendation to us on a real-time basis. And you are talking about like I think globally, that probably around maybe two billion kind of smartphone users or people who have some access to the internet. So you talk about two billions of Individual recommendation systems, which is very powerful, and obviously that's only possible with the five G and the fiber. And moving on to the digital transformation, the digital infrastructure story. Um, do you have an example of that theme in the portfolio, and, and what's the appeal behind it? Um, other than we talked about software, so what about the hardware and things? We we probably are not. Uh, probably less of a fan on hardware. So I think one feature, uh, so one of the more prominent feature in the fund, in the under this digital transformation theme, is that we do like software businesses, and I think Microsoft is one of have been one of the top holdings in the fund since we started, and I think recently we have actually made the holding even a bit bigger compared to before. And I think one thing that you 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 come across about software business is not only that they are not constrained by supply chain because at the moment, if you're talking about any sort of like hardware capability, that a lot of that will be constrained by supply chain, and then secondly, that if you are purely a software provider, that you will be able to roll out new. Uh, software to your customer base quite quickly, and I think Teams has been a good example for Microsoft that you don't actually need to download uh, manually these Teams uh, onto your PC. I think one day we just woke up, uh, we switch on to our PC, and, and then you see this window that says pop up to say, "Oh, it's Teams. Maybe you want to sign up here." And suddenly, all your colleagues have started using it, and then you're part of this ecosystem. And and then the other thing about software is last year for Microsoft they un. Announced that they're going to increase their prices for the all three three six five subscription by fifteen to twenty percent this year. So this fifteen to twenty percent increase in prices is going to kick in in next, from next quarters, and and given that the switching cost is very high, that you're you're not only using Teams, you're using Outlook, you're using the Windows, etc., that we are going to pay for the price increase. So that is only possible when you have some sort of software or subscription model. I think hardware, I think some hardware company could do well, but then but then you do get the other side of the fence that maybe when the world is a bit uncertain, then maybe capital expenditure in terms of buying new hardware could be reduced, et cetera. And then moving on to sort of the, some of the bigger themes in the world, um, inflation is a, a massive buzzword at the moment. Um, seeing a lot of it, you've talked a lot about the pricing power of your companies and being able to get those through. Um, but what about those that can't? Um, what else do you feel that they need in order to succeed? And what sort of impact is inflation going to have on um, your investing choices going forward? Yes, I, I think uh, that the two things that we, we could talk about here. I think the first part of the the conversation is definitely related to the companies that 
that how they operate in an inflationary environment. And there are two parts to the equation to make a company to be quite inflation-proof. The first part is pricing power. I think a lot of people talk about pricing power, but still I think you need to differentiate the magnitude of the pricing power because that you on one side you have Microsoft, which could increase prices by 15 to 20% with no customers going with, without losing any customers. On the other hand, you could have, let's say, maybe Unilever that could raise prices by 3 to 4%. So the magnitude is different. But then the other part of the equation, which is equally important, I don't think many people talk about this, is the gross margin. So gross margin is the difference between the revenue line and how much you pay to the external suppliers before it comes back to how much money you have to pay the internal staff or your offices, et cetera. And typically for the uh, FTSE 100 index, if you use the FTSE 100 company as a collective, the gross margin is only about 30%. So 70% of the revenue that FTSE 100 companies make are paid to external suppliers, which means that you can't actually control those costs. And if you look at the world stock market, it's about 40% which is a bit better than the FTSE 100 index. If you look at Unilever, it's about 40%. Look at Amazon on a combined basis, including the AWS, it's about 40%. But if you look at software businesses for Microsoft, that the gross gross margin is about 70%. So when you have a company with very high gross margin, 70%, so only 30% of the revenue lines to paying to some external suppliers, then at the same time, you are increasing prices by 15 to 20%. You could actually be making more money on the back of the inflation narrative in contrast to the lower gross margin businesses, even though that you can raise prices, but because like you have to pay a lot to external suppliers, then at best, you will be able to protect your uh, operating margin, which is not making more money, but at least you're not making less money. And if you look at our fund, uh, the Blue Well Growth Strategy, that the, the weighted gross margin for our fund is 70%. Because I think I already uh, talked about earlier that we, we do have quite a lot of exposure to software businesses. So not hardware companies. And for software businesses, high gross margin is what you get. Well, thank you. Um, and I know we've talked about a few companies already and a couple that you've sold, but just to end, can you maybe talk to us about a sort of recent addition to the portfolio, especially in the light of volatility um, that has been in the market? So late last year that we have um, uh, added a new company called Charles Swap uh, to the fund. So I think if people are familiar with the investment market in the US, that Charles Swap is the largest investment platform so similar to in the UK will be similar to the likes of Hargreaves Lansdowne, AJ Bell, Interactive Investors. And what we like about a company is not so much that it's going, it's going to benefit uh, from an increasing interest rate. So basically for the US customers that they have, that typically the customer would maintain about maybe 10% of the portfolio in cash. And obviously, if you are holding cash with the investment platform that you don't actually receive much interest, even though that interest rate is going to go up. And what Charles Schwab is trying to do is to pay you a bit of interest, but at the same time, they will use the money to invest into high yielding assets, which is how they make the money. But at the same time, on top of that, that recently they have acquired a very close competitor called TD Ameritrade in the US. So it, that uh, acquisition 
actually strengthen the competitive positioning of Charles Schwab at the same time that there's a lot of synergies that go behind the scene that they could probably consolidate some of the back office or the invest, uh, the technology platform, et cetera. And I think last but not least, if you, you follow Charles Schwab in terms of company that the customer base are pretty sticky because the average customer base would be over the age of 50. At the same time, the portfolio that they have on average would be over 200K US dollar. So if you do equally follow Robinhood as part of your research, that you would know Robinhood's uh, the average portfolio size would be a few thousand dollars, which is quite small sum. And then and over time, I think in terms of structural growth story is like if you, if you do believe that the American household in general are pretty robust in terms of the economy, in terms of people getting a bit wealthier, then they have this natural tailwind in terms of the asset that they manage over time. But obviously what have drawn us into investing into Charles Schwab now, rather than let's say three years ago, was was to do with the fact that they are quite the closest competitor at the same time, interest rate is going to be a tailwind for them in terms of profit. So, so then you put all this together into our valuation framework that then the valuation is looking pretty attractive at the moment. Brilliant. Well, as ever, thank you very much for your time, Stephen. It's been really interesting. Um, and hopefully we can, uh, that 5G story does play out and I can be on the beach when we do this, this podcast next time. Beautiful. Launched in 2017, the LF Blue Whale Growth Fund has come storming into the global equity fund scene. As Stephen alluded to in today's episode, it's a truly active fund and is very concentrated portfolio. The manager only invests in the very highest quality businesses, and although the fund may not have been around for long, its strong performance has certainly drawn attention. To learn more about LF Blue Whale Growth Fund, visit fundcaliber.com, and don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen's previous comments on Zoom are part of a past episode, number 92. Please remember we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 